Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from SeedCamp. I have the privilege today of sitting next to Sheila Marcello, founder and chairwoman of Care.com, a company she started in 2006, now a public company uh, all over the world and with many, many employees uh, sitting in our offices, beautiful facilities, view of Waltham on a sunny day in Boston. Let's start with the, the, the backstory. We always like to begin with the very beginning um, and sort of get a feeling for who you were right after college. What was the first thing you did right after college? Actually, let me start during college. So thanks, Carlos, for having me. So I was born and raised in the Philippines, and I came here for in the United States for college. I went to a women's college. The reason it's relevant before college is I got pregnant in college. Uh, so I now have a close to 20, I mean, he's actually close to 25-year-old. And so I've been married to the same man for that long. <laughs> and um, we got pregnant, and I struggled with care at a very, very young age. Uh, and uh, my parents lived in the Philippines. My husband's parents were deceased, so we didn't really have a lot of options. I had, you know, we had to go through undergrad, grad school, and our career with uh, a child, and it was very difficult. And then when we had our second child, while we were in grad school and business school, I begged my parents to come from the Philippines to take care of our younger son, and my father ended up getting a heart attack. So at 29. I was considered what we call here in the United States part of the sandwich generation, which was struggling with both childcare and senior care at the same time. And I was very young and I was working in a technology company and I was also part of that founding team. And what was troubling for me is that I started to use the yellow pages, if you guys remember what that is, <laughs> a big thick book uh, of classifieds trying to look for or advertising to look for caregivers for, for, my, uh, for my family. Because the whole point of my parents uh, coming to the U.S. was to help me with childcare, and now I found myself stuck worrying about both. And then I had the insight that there would be a demand for something like this, and that I wasn't the only one, that millions of families, especially women, struggle with finding care. And it's like many stories, it's often our personal experiences that provides that insight uh, and what's driven me personally has been the passion that I've had. Now, what's interesting is I ended up prior to care.com choosing professions that were really focused around helping people. I thought that I would be a banker. I thought that I would be a strategy consultant, uh, very, very aggressive uh, about my ambition and my career at a young age, but then found that the trade-offs for me was, well, I wanted something given I was a young mother that I wanted something that was focused on families. So my first job out of consulting and business school was actually to help families save money for college. And my kids were still very young, but obviously I, I was thinking about more difficult things in life because I was struggling through those pain points as, as, a, as a young mother. And, and then after that, I worked at a company. I was there, I mean, I was at You Promise for five years. I learned about startups. You know, in, in, in business school, I felt that I was paying to learn. And, and I remember graduating, I did my JD MBA at Harvard. And after I graduated, I got this offer at the startup called You Promise. Didn't have a name at the time, but they weren't gonna pay me very much. I was gonna let go of a very high, a well-paid strategic consulting job, but I felt like they were gonna train and I was gonna learn and I didn't even have to pay tuition, they were paying me. So I was thrilled. Uh, Cause I, you know, and I, I didn't take a VP or director title at the time because I felt like I had a lot to learn and I was just interested operationally. So I went in and often I advise a lot of founders to just go in and roll up your sleeves. And I wrote requirements. I helped write the first press release for the company. 
I worked on uh, helping with uh, look at creative and design. Uh, I eventually moved to technology and I managed uh, the CTO believed in me enough, though I had no engineering background, that I could run a, a small part of the group in technology. So I started to learn a lot. And that's today. It's, it's valuable because I don't think tech is a black box to me. And because I've done a lot of the jobs at a startup, it's something that I appreciate, appreciate all the operations. And then after leaving there, I realized that I still wanted more entrepreneurial experience than I, you'll see, hear, hear a theme, that then I worked at theladders.com in New York, and that helped people find jobs. And it was sort of each time something in my own career focused around sets of issues that either I was starting to think about that or I knew other people in my situation. Uh, and then for personal reasons, because I was working in New York uh, and my family was here, which was very difficult. I had to commute back and forth. I decided to leave the ladders, which was, was really difficult because I loved my job. Uh, we were about to put our home here on sale. We were going to buy a place, pretty exciting place in New York. But the trade-off for me was I was going to move my children to different schools and they were very happy in the situation we had here in Boston. So that's been tough to trade that off. But it worked out that I was invited by Matrix at the time, and Nick Bime was a partner at the time at Matrix, to, as an um, entrepreneur in residence. And that's where I wrote my business plan for Care.com. And so you'll hear my story of for sort of personal reasons and professional as well. You know, You Promise was focused on uh, families building a network of camp companies. It was a B2C and a B2B model, which is what care.com is today. The Ladders was a marketplace for jobs. Uh, so you can see that my sort of business background, I also brought to bear in, in starting care.com, not just my per personal background. And today... Before, before we yeah. continue with, with the story of care.com, yeah. I want to interject with, with kind of, if you can bring yourself back to that moment, the moment when you were writing that business plan and you were thinking about I, I can't remember exactly when Sheryl Sandberg wrote her book, and I can't. Yeah. Um, th there is Marissa. She wrote it she about was, three years ago, yeah. When uh, Marissa was, uh, which was uh, two years ago, when she was dismissing remote workers, mm. uh, there's been a lot of attempts um, on trying to find work-life balance and mm. <laughs> and be inclusive of people who might not be able to come into the local office. And, and I've heard different philosophies. Um, Joel Gasconia from Buffer.com, I had the privilege of, of, of speaking with him, and he has a view that it, either everyone is remote or everyone's in office, but some sort of intermingle thing doesn't work. Mm. When, you were, when you were thinking about care.com and, and bringing with it all the background that you, you had, dealing with a lot of the, the familial issues, what was your hypothesis to like what culture you wanted to, to establish and, and, and how you were going to hire talent of, of that nature? Yeah, I've, I've always had the fundamental belief in empowering people to make choices and flexibility matters a lot to me more than FaceTime, so in my own management style. So I wanted to build a company based on that belief and that philosophy and that value set. Uh, so at the ladders, I was actually enamored with the idea of building a uh, group of women who could work from home. I, I run into so many incredibly talented women, highly educated, very experienced, who opt out of the workplace because of the challenges of flexibility and want to be able to work from home when they have small children. And I wanted to start a, a what I called a mom force at the ladders. Uh, we never got it off the ground, so when I started care.com, I think within a couple months, we started what we called the mom force. We've since morphed it to the care force. We have about a, uh, over 200 women who work from home, completely flexible. They decide on their hours. We built them systems of monitoring their performance, communication, 
social interactions uh, with them. So I, we walk the talk because we believe so much in flexibility, and that involves pretty much everybody in the company. I mean, for all full-time employees, we don't track sick time. We think that's really important. We're revisiting all our paid paid leave policies to make sure that 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 we provide that flexibility. I, I'm just a huge believer that if you if you're clear on performance and goals of what needs to get done, people will manage that. People will manage their personal challenges to make it work if they're performers. Mm-hmm. So I think as long as you're clear with that. Now, at the same time, the challenge is how do you build a culture if you don't have time with each other? So you do need to build systems in which collaboration can happen. I mean, you're in my office now, and you can see that we leverage technology as much as possible. So from the very beginning, my co-founder here, one of them, Dave Kropinski, is our CTO. He's still our co-founder today. He worked out of Greece and managed teams in India and here, and then eventually in Berlin. And he has he did that for six and a half years. And now we work together also at You Promise, and did that together for five years. So we knew each other for a very long time, but he worked completely remotely. I mean, I think he was here once a quarter. And so from day one, we are very used to, as a company, to allow people to work remotely. We're used to video technology, getting them on the phone, making sure that we're buttoned up, sending presentations to each other, and just making it work and leveraging technology. So I do think that setting the values, Carlos, to your question is, be clear on that. But the thing is to invest in the systems. It's not enough to have the philosophy of what you believe in and the value set that you have that either supports flexibility or not, depends on the kind of culture you want to build. But you must be able to support it so that they can be successful employees. Because if you can't, then it, it's hard to then say, well, we support flexibility, theoretically. And that's, to me, today, when I look at companies and they create policies, whether it's on paid leave or anything, you know, uh, McKinsey, and you, sh- and, and you mentioned Cheryl, uh, McKinsey and Lean In just did a study. Uh, and basically, 90% of employees in the survey responded that they are afraid to take family leave, though the policies may be there in the company because it will impact their performance. So, I mean, I think you have to have systems, culture, mm-hmm processes in place to ensure that you're not just stating it, that in fact, you're living living by the, 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 the things that you support. Mm-hmm. So if we picked up where we left off, you're in a room, matrix, EIR yeah. role, drafting a, a plan, probably walked over and said, guys, I have it. I know what I'm going to be doing <laughs> for the rest of my life, or at least for the next six years or so. What, what was the what was that initial process? What was that like? I mean, clearly you already had some experience with startup. Yeah. What, was, what were the key inflection points over the course of the next three, four years where you were like, I'm on the right track or, oh my God, why did I even think of this? So I would say in developing the business plan, and this was in 06, wrote it and researched it. And um, in the early days, by the way, as you all know, it's very lonely. Uh, in the very early days, I found I was talking to myself a lot other than checking in with Nick, who is a partner at Matrix, and Dave Scott, who I also worked closely with. And there was a fellow entrepreneur, Antonio Rodriguez, who also was working on his company at the time at Matrix. And he ended up becoming a partner at Matrix and later joined my board. So that network was it was pretty incredible when, when Nick moved on to another venture firm. Um, but in the early days, in developing, it was just lonely. I remember talking a lot to myself saying, 
it's okay. Even though, because when I developed the business plan, my co-founders hadn't joined yet. I was still working on the overall concept and pitched it. And then when funded, invited my co-founders to join, to join the company. So, and in developing the business plan, so much of it was focused around talking to moms, talking to people about what their needs are in the early days, uh, doing all, I was, I was everything from, you know, analysts, financial planner, you, you know, you, you kind of have to do it all. And what's interesting is as I started to peel the onion and did the total addressable market size, I came up with $240 billion a year, sort of the size of the market. Later, as we were preparing to go public, we had to go size the market as well. I have to tell you that I, I think Morgan Stanley, our lead lead book runner, uh, and our even our internal analysts, there are a lot of different ways to get there, all end up at $240 billion. So that was kind of funny. You know, it could have been um, luck that we ended up there, but even those early days really working through the spreadsheets and developing the business plan to size the market, to understand the product, um, to envision what we were going to do. What's cool today is every twice a year I do the history of strategy at CARE for all new directors and VPs and I bring out that old deck on my A round. It is still very relevant to the original vision that we were executing on from size of market to what we're pursuing, the overall strategy. There have been some pivots along the way, certainly, as you learn. And then I just had my board meeting yesterday, and we were uh, looking at a slide that I had created in July 2008, obviously with the team. And we were showing how we were still delivering on that roadmap and where we were and how uh, we're, we were probably 60% on that one specific slide. There are other things uh, strategy slide. So there hasn't been a shortage of ideas. It's it's a good place to be to have lo- lots of opportunities and in a domain like four-letter word that can encompass a lot of things, care. <laughs> so there's no shortage of opportunities. It's about picking the right set of priorities. Mm-hmm. And really, it's all about excellence and execution. Mm-hmm. It just has come down for us on that. But and if I flip if I flip excellence and execution and I assume that in order to get there you made mistakes. Absolutely. What what, it's, what, um, what what mistake you reckon that many founders make very early on? I mean the guys in the room as part of our Seed Camp US trip that are here right now are probably in year one or two, year three of their company. What what are the mistakes that you've seen both from before you promised and and care? Um, the key thing is fail fast. I think there's a reason, I recall Warren Buffett once uh, said that he had looked at data and said the most successful entrepreneurs are ones that start early and very young because of the risk taking. And so it's it's fail fast. It's test and iterate. Don't beat yourself up about it. Set your ego aside and constantly learn. And I think I, from from being a founder all the way to being a public company CEO, it's constantly learning. It, it is always being so open to say, hey, what new thing? And, and the job is constantly changing. Um, I'm also a big believer, in, and there are so many unicorns now. You know, unicorns are supposed to be rare, but you know, the, the, <laughs> there's so many unicorns now. And I often give people advice that it's hard. This is really, really hard. And I'm not one to ever judge whether someone's doing well or a company is in trouble because it's just hard work. There's so many dynamics behind it. So I often tell people, our jobs is to stay stable right here as leaders. Just to stay right here. Never drink the Kool-Aid when you're on a high because you never know. And I've seen companies and I've seen founders and CEOs when they were building to that and suddenly they're on a high, it's changed them completely. 
in their team management, in how they're building companies, and you forget how hard it is suddenly. And then when it's down here, you start to beat yourself up and you, and, and you lose your confidence and yet your team's looking at you. So I'm constantly a believer in like no matter what, stay right here because if you're driven as an entrepreneur, you will start another company again, whether you're successful or not. And you're gonna go knock on doors. And I've seen entrepreneurs who are serial, did the first unicorn and then they're knocking on doors and then they're mediocre for their next one. Well, what, what happens then? Does that mean you lose your inner strengths as, as, a, as a founder and CEO? No, because you're always sort of right there and stable around how you think about your own life and how you're running the company. So that's just been something I've always reminded myself, whether it's with my executive coach or my team, I say, I always tell my team, no matter how successful we are, never drink that Kool-Aid, we say here in the United States. Just, just dropped a word that caught my attention there, executive coach. Yes. Uh, when, when did you start having an executive coach and do you recommend very early stage founders to having an executive coach, even if it perhaps dips into the cash flow a bit? Um, so it's absolutely worth it. I started when I was 29 at, I was also promoted at the same time that I was struggling with childcare and senior care. I was the youngest on the management team at You Promise, and they were very, very seasoned. And George Bell, my um, boss, said, Sheila, maybe a good idea to get a coach. And I said, okay, that sounds good. Uh, and I've had the same coach throughout my career, same guy. And he's coached all my teams. And now he coaches directors around the company because he knows me really well, he knows my value set, and he knows the management teams. He's even moved on to coach former management team members in previous companies and stayed on to, with them as, as the coach. I think it's absolutely worth it, especially if you haven't had managerial and leadership experience. Because the other thing I see is, look, I very much encourage young people. I have a son who oftentimes is the same age as founders that I talk to <laughs> and encourage entrepreneurship. But what ends up happening is you leap. You know, I was talking to a young woman who joined a, a very successful startup that Facebook bought to be named Nameless. And she was one of the founding team members. And she and I had a heart to heart at a follow on um, lunch with, with tears in her eyes because she said, I've been so successful, but what do I do now? But that success was, was leaping a lot of learnings on leadership and management and how you build cultures and how do you build efficient operational processes? And how do you think about scale? And and yeah, so I think mm. I, I think it's it's important to get that coaching early to fast track you. So because if everyone which I really needed, by the way, in my twenties. <laughs> if everyone got the name of your guy, it would be swamped or or gal, and maybe he's in his he's in his late seventies. So I think he's starting yeah, he's, to. It's probably winding yeah. down. So maybe yeah. what we can do is abstract out the, the, the top three attributes that you think that somebody should look out for. Because there's a lot of there's a lot of people out there who probably claim themselves to be a coach, but probably are not qualified to be. So as with everything in life. So what what would you say the top three attributes for a founder to look for to know that this guy or this gal or the one that would, would be the best? Know when you're bullshitting. They just know you really well and will ask the probing questions to say, did you say that? because that's what you meant? Or did you say that because you're dealing with something else that's really the heart of the problem? And it just knows you, they hold up a mirror. It's not too diff different, I mean, it's sort of your professional parent if you think about it. <laughs> you know, because you know whether your mother or father or someone in your life who will say to, say to you, 
that's not really the agenda that we're talking about. So what's really going on? Because so much of running a company is is what I call self-awareness and leadership and that the more that you stop focusing on yourself, you free up your brain to focus on other people and the problems at hand. But you got to put in the work so that you know what your triggers are, you know what bothers you, you know. And so when you go in a room, then you can just lead and not have to worry about all the other crap that's in your head. And that's the best coaches know how to have that conversation. So I think that's important. But they also know that you're human. No one's expecting you to be perfect. And those are difficult conversations. And as you know, when you're managing people, is how do you give a balance of both feedback, but inspire and build confidence? And if you're working with a coach who doesn't do that for you and you just feel like a loser after every time you guys speak, then you know you, you should probably think about getting someone who helps build your confidence because this job is all about making sure that you've got your mind straight, you've got your personal stuff all sorted out, you know, you've got your financial stuff sorted out because your focus needs to be on the people that you lead, the product that you build, and the people that you serve. And so if you don't have your personal stuff all sorted out, it's, it's, it's a challenge. Now, of course, there are going to be ebbs and flows in life. Totally get it. But, you know, I've come to the conclusion that this job is, it is what it is. It's demanding. I love what I do. But there are a lot of personal sacrifices. Mm. And, that's, and I'm cool with that. Mm. Okay. Well, uh, we want to thank you for your time. And hopefully we'll continue to hear inspiring stories uh, about the evolution of care and hopefully host you in London when you're over there next time. I would love that. Thank you, Carlos. Thank you, Sheila. Until next time, guys. Bye.